Welcome to Fast Frontiers. I'm your host, Tim Shigel, Managing Partner of Refinery Ventures. In this episode, we're talking with Adam Sharkawi. Adam is the co-founder and managing partner at Material Impact, a venture fund located in Boston, Massachusetts. In this episode, we're going to dive into Adam's unique background and his career journey, which he calls his algorithm, which was going back to school after experiencing an exit at each startup he worked for. So he's been through his undergrad, a startup, had an exit, went back for his master's, had another startup, had an exit, got his PhD, was running corporate innovation, and now a venture fund. Material Impact's focus is on deep tech innovation, and we share an investment in Folio Photonics. We also get a bit geeked out on chaos and complexity theory and nonlinear systems and discuss that some of the most interesting innovations come from the convergence of technology and business models. And that's where the cool stuff happens. The biggest theme or so what I hope you take away from this conversation is that whether you're pulling technology and intellectual property out of research universities or corporate innovation processes or startups, they're all hard to do well, but when done correctly, can be extremely disruptive and successful. Please enjoy my conversation with Adam Sharkawi. Hello, Adam. Welcome to Fast Frontiers. Good morning, Tim. How are you? Awesome. Talking about Fast Frontiers and innovation. Uh, Adam's partner at Material Impact on the leading edge of cool frontier hard tech, as some people call it. Uh, So I'm really looking forward to digging in, Adam, and sharing some of your wisdom and experience uh, with, with our audience. But first... And maybe even more importantly, I think you know your personal story is very, very interesting. So if you don't mind, I'd love to have you share some of that because uh, I think it probably does inform a lot of your the way you think about the world and think about investing. So yeah, tell us a little bit about your, your how you grew up and how you came to get into the venture capital business. No, great. Thank you. First of all, thank you for having me. It's uh, it's really a pleasure. It's always a pleasure talking to you, but uh, a pleasure to uh, get an opportunity to uh, share experiences and uh, and thoughts on a topic we both very very much care for. Uh, but you know, going backwards, rewinding a little bit uh, to my background, I was born in Cairo and came to the U.S. Uh, at the age of uh, three to four. My uh, my dad at the time, I think, uh, came over for DuPont. So there's a, a little bit of a material lineage, lineage in, in, in our family, uh, even though that was a little bit indirect. But uh, when uh, so we moved to, to Delaware, uh, I grew up in Delaware, basically from uh, you know pre-K all the way to pre-med to the college. So, And it was a great little town in Newark uh, where we were basically living on campus, uh, as, as a matter of fact. I would say that uh, there was a period of my life uh, where both my parents were uh, were working at the University of Delaware at, at one point in time, and and basically uh, after school, I just walk over to the student center, and instead of babysitting, my mom would just drop me off with a bunch of hippie students, and I was kind of uh, <laughs> raised in the uh, in the progressive uh, '70s flower power generation. It was great. So it was, it was uh, just a, a, a great, great experience all around. But 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 basically, um, I decided that uh, I wanted to also get back in touch with my roots, and uh, and so uh, I went back to Egypt for a period of time, about uh, three and a half years, and and uh, you know, there's a, a longer story behind that. But ba- basically, to uh, to keep it uh, somewhat brief, 
decided to do an engineering degree there uh, to give myself some uh, justification for being there for a few years. And it was really, to me, one of the kind of a very seminal set of experiences for me, because as they say, you know, need is the mother of invention. And, and uh, it's a very different world uh, in some of these emerging uh, uh, markets where, you know, I would liken it to here in the U.S., things are kind of macro functions. You kind of call a macro function. Everything is kind of prepackaged and re- ready for you to plug and play. It's a, yeah, it's a macro exist. function. Macro function is equivalent to the easy button, right? Exactly. Exactly. No, it's just, and, and, and that is not the case in most of the, uh, the, the, the emerging world. Uh, everything has to be done bottom up, man, from scratch. You know, uh, and so there's very little plug and play in anything. Certainly, I saw uh, so many things there that just influenced me in, in, a, in, in, a, in a way to really appreciate uh, how uh, innovative people were when they, when they really needed to be, when they didn't have these macro functions to call. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I can share some of those you know, anecdotes with you. But, but in any case, uh, it w- so it wasn't just that I was doing engineering. It was I was doing engineering in an environment where innovation was almost baked into individualized efforts on a daily basis. And, uh, and that, I think, really influenced me. But in any case, I, um, after finishing that, I uh, decided to come back to the, to the U.S. and didn't, you know, at the time I didn't have uh, ties back to Delaware and thought, hey, let me, let me uh, you know, pick a, a new venue and, uh, and experience a new part of the U.S. And uh, mini, mini, mo, I chose uh, San Francisco and the Bay Area. And uh, the Silicon Valley was, was right in the middle of the, you know, the, the chip boom, right? It was kind of the... Uh, the mid eighties and, uh, a lot of, a lot of innovation in microelectronics. I went there and, and actually was trying to marry my love for both engineering and the life sciences. Uh, I got my first job in a medical device company that was a small startup, uh, that was really innovating the way that, uh, coronary artery disease, one of the, the largest, you know, health issues, uh, was treated. It was uh, the, kind of the pioneering alternative to open chest surgery. So it was the advent of the balloon catheter before catheters existed, which not only led to an interesting technology, but an entirely new practice called interventional cardiology and a new kind of practitioner called the interventional cardiologist that didn't exist at the time. So it was it was a really uh, uh, cool opportunity to 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 be part of that. Basically. I went through a series kind of for the first half of my career, I was a serial entrepreneur and went through a series of this kind of algorithm uh, between, you know, I was fortunate that every startup I was involved in got acquired. And so after every exit, I would, that's not not a given. That's not easy to do. (laughs) I was, I was fortunate, Uh, but I decided to go back to school after every exit. So it it became this, uh, this algorithm that I developed. So after the first one got acquired by Eli Lilly, I ended up uh, uh, deciding to go back to school and uh, studied something that had nothing to do with my career at the time, but it was of, of personal interest to me, which was chaos theory, I kind of the it. intersection between uh, nonlinear mathematics, fractals, and innovation. It was really eye-opening for me because um, what I was doing more specifically was trying to figure out 
how to think nonlinearly, mm-hmm. how to, mm-hmm. uh, uh, in the advent of certain problems, jump out of the rut of, of quote unquote linear thinking and uh, utilize uh, chaos that, that basically allows for very um, simple solutions to complex problems and, and with v- very complex dynamics, but very simple underlying uh, uh, governing equations and, 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 and so forth. So it was, a, it was, a, it was a, a means to try to energize the innovation process through nonlinear thinking. And that was uh, very seminal for me as well. Uh, but at the time, I didn't know it. Uh, I was just uh, pursuing a personal interest. Uh, finished that, went back to the Bay Area a second time, did another startup um, that got acquired and decided, all right, time to go back to school again. Of course. <laughs> uh, ended up going back uh, to Duke, uh, uh, did my PhD in, in uh, biomedical engineering and biomaterials. And uh, after wrapping that up, went back to the Bay Area a third time. Did another set of startups. Uh, one that was a spin-off from Stanford got acquired by Johnson Johnson. Another one that I uh, started from scratch um, with a, a friend of mine that ended up uh, getting acquired by Medtronic, and um, and then decided to to jump to the other side of the fence and 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 try to get a, a, an understanding of almost the exact opposite of what I was doing, which was. Uh, Instead of starting up small things and trying to grow them to a certain uh, point and then selling them off, is to run large-scale businesses and try to acquire things and use those to bolt on and and, and grow them at scale. Uh, so I, I jumped to the, uh, as I say, the the dark world of corporate leadership, and um, uh, you know became members of of, of uh, leadership teams of really large corporate five, you know, Fortune five hundred in, in in the healthcare field. Uh, companies like Guidant and Abbott and Smith and Nephew and Medicines Company did that for about another fourteen or fifteen years. Um, and through that that course, I did a lot of acquisitions. Um, and really uh, was very fortunate again enough to to have started to, to kind of develop my own thesis around how do you. Um, how do you uh, increase enterprise value through innovation on from both sides of the fence and um, and develop kind of my own thoughts around that and so you know fast forward to around um, 2015 or so about uh, six years ago um, you know, thought that I really wanted to go back to my entrepreneurial roots but instead of you know doing so across one company, I thought it would be great to leverage experiences across, you know, many companies and to do so in a way where, you know, we'd be able to help out, um, younger, brighter entrepreneurs than us, uh, really, you know, take the baton and, 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 and change the world through their, uh, transformative technologies. Uh, and at the same time, a very good friend of mine, uh, Carmichael Roberts, who, you know, we've known each other for about 20 something years. Um, uh, from, from our PhD days at Duke, uh, was also thinking about kind of the next thing. And he was, he and I were very similar in our backgrounds. I would say in the first half of our careers, both of us were entrepreneurs. When I, uh, uh, went the, uh, the world of, of corporate leadership, he went, uh, into, um, the venture world. And, um, I thought, you know, we have, 
we're common to our core, but we have this complementarity as well. And, uh, and so, you know, it would be great to join forces and start our own, um, uh, our own fund. And, and out of that was, uh, was material impact. We started material impact in, uh, you know, we started kind of raising material impact in 2016, finished our, 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 our first fund raise, uh, in 2017, closed it, um, at about 110 million. Uh, and out of that, uh, uh, did uh, a dozen or so companies and then, uh, started our second fund. And it's, and it's funny, I'll just share this anecdote with you. We decided to, to, to start our second fund raise around the end of 2019, did our first close for half that amount, half the, the target amount at the time we were trying to raise 150. We, uh, raised about half of that and did our first close at the last day of February, February 28th. Wow. Timing and, is everything. Uh, Just like your probably, acquisitions, uh, yeah. something about you, man. I had a big trade. Yeah, but, it, but it goes both ways, Tim goes yeah, both yeah. ways because you know, then, then you know, everything, everything changed, you know, everything flipped on its head sure. the very next week. Sure. You know, and I was, Oh my God, we have to raise the rest of this thing. Now we're committed to 10 years. We're going to, we got to raise the rest of this thing. And so we put it into overdrive and, uh, and, uh, we were very fortunate. We oversubscribed twice and, uh, finished it six months out of schedule and raised 205. And so it was, uh, it was a great ex- uh, experience. That's awesome. So, so, uh, tell us a little bit about, yeah, material impacts, very unique firm and you guys have unique capabilities, but just share a little bit about that, your focus area and the kind of companies that you look for and stage. Sure. Yeah, we, you know, I would say three basic tenets to material impact. Uh, the first tenet is that we were a deep tech fund that firmly believes, and you know, hopefully at a time before deep tech was was on vogue. Uh, but uh, you know, a deep tech fund that firmly believes that you can trace back almost every disruption in any market or industry segment to an underlying material science enabler. And uh, you know, I give uh, examples that pertain to you know alloying of metals did to the automotive industry and what, you know, um, polymers have done to almost everything, uh, what, uh, you know, composite materials have done to the airline industry, uh, and what this funny little element called silicon has done to an entire valley and to everything that we touch and do today. Um, and so, uh, you know, that I would say is the first tenet to our thesis. And we think that, that material science, um, advancements unlock new engineering solutions and new engineering paradigms. So, you know, the, the laws of engineering continuously change based on the axioms of what material science allows. Uh, e- even Newtonian mechanics, you know, change uh, based on new material properties, right? So it, that, uh, that, that's, uh, that's one of our tenets. The second uh, tenet is that we like to work on really large unmet needs in you know, in the basic, in those basic, uh, 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 you know, at the most basic level of, of society, of, of humankind. Uh, and I call those kind of Maslowian needs, needs at the lowest base of Maslow's shrine. So, uh, you know, the, you know, issues around water scarcity and food supply chain and underrepresented segments of healthcare, uh, certain aspects of transportation, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and the third tenet is really the reason why we started material impact in the first place, which is 
you know, uh, we, we get involved very, very uh, intimately with our founders, where we spend a lot of time trying to leverage our own experiences uh, to helping them build their companies, which I realize is something that a lot of, you know, uh, venture firms will say, but I, I think, I'd like to think we take it to a new level. We really, you know, there, there are very, it's rare that a week goes by where I haven't spoken to almost every one of my CEOs and sometimes several times and we're working together. It's not a, an update session. It's mm-hmm. we're working together on solving something. And so we're, we have a very hands-on approach. We're shoulder to shoulder with our entrepreneurs and we get involved so early uh, that sometimes, you know, as, as Carmichael would, would like to say, we're, we're, we're indistinguishable from the founder sometimes. So um, and you uh, and Carmichael are great at that. Your backgrounds are perfect for that. So you're, you're incredible resource for founders and CEOs and then the rest of your team also reflects that, I think, you know, so, Thank you. which is, uh, just terrific. The, uh, Oh, f- first of all, let's step back a second disclosure. We're co-investors in a company, uh, a very interesting company in Cleveland out of case Western reserve called folio photonics started by Dr. Ken Singer, who was a uh, bell lab scientist and a researcher and professor at case Western. And they are unlocking the power of, uh, optical technologies in a completely new way in the ability to uh, leverage fluorescence and quantum dots and others to massively increase the amount of storage available uh, and random access storage, which has become a huge problem. Um, when you look at Amazon, Google, Microsoft, the cloud, the amount of storage that's necessary and that's accumulating is likely to lead to a data apocalypse. Um, we just don't know where to put it. And we think Folio may be solving that problem. Uh, and so we appreciate you investing in that company with us. Um, I love, I gotta tell you, uh, you've coined that term so well. I mean, I love that. I love that term, uh, Tim. That's exactly, that's so descriptive of, of, I think the dynamics that we're seeing play out right now. Yeah. It's amazing that people, uh, for those who don't, you know, kind of understand or appreciate it, you know, uh, that, that, that funny cat video that you upload to Facebook, right. Uh, they have to store that somewhere. And a year or two later, you might want to show it to your friends or your family and they have to get that photo or that video, which means they cannot store it off site in some tape storage, which is historically where people stored archive data. It needs to be accessed relatively quickly. And, uh, we're, you know, talking about materials, you know, we're coming to sort of end of life on uh, magnetic drives, right? Which also suck up a huge amount of energy because they're always there spinning. And um, it's a big problem. And the uh, it's, it's, it's amazing. It's one of the biggest industries. It's kind of like death taxes and storage, right? I mean, st- storage isn't going to go away. We know that. It, it's only getting bigger and bigger. And the world really doesn't know where the next uh, generation, uh, evolution of storage is going to come from. I mean, people talk about DNA storage, but that's still likely to be decades off where it can be used in production. Right. So, um, that's why, you know, we're both excited in what folio offers. And, um, it's another example just, you know, for, for listeners in terms of understanding the kind of technologies uh, that are out there that are being developed that, that we're looking for, which are coming out of uh, so many major research universities around the country. It's not just MIT and Stanford. 
right? This happens to be Case Western, but you Carnegie Mellon and Michigan and Illinois and Purdue. I mean, there is so much out there uh, that I think you'd agree um, entrepreneurs need to be paying attention to. So that's a, that's a very important topic you just brought up, um, Tim. So I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. So uh, couldn't agree more. So first of all, we'll take a step back and say, you know, if you were to ask, well, what are some of the biggest sources of deep tech innovations and where do we as material impact really try to focus a lot of our time and attention to? Definitely it's in university uh, and academic institutions. Um, you know, there's, uh, for, for, for several reasons, you know, first of all, there are some great technologies that can get de-risked with a lot of non-dilutive funding and over, you know, years and years of, 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 uh, development through multiple generations of, of, of PhD students and postdocs, but, but in a way where they really are advanced, it's not like a science, uh, project. These are technologies now that are uh, really being motivated, not by just blue sky research, by, by, but, you know, rather by, uh, some major problems that I think are becoming relevant. And, and we're seeing a lot of this, by the way, we're seeing a lot of, we're seeing more, um, uh, objective oriented and mission oriented research than just, you know, typical blue sky research. So that's, that's, that's one piece. So if, you know, there's, there's a, great technologies that are being developed in academic institutions. But then to your point, I think uh, a lot of attention is, is really focused on the coasts. And then uh, to be even more specific, probably 75 to 80% is really focused in two areas on the coasts. Uh, and, you know, the New York Boston corridor and the San Francisco uh, corridor. And there are some incredibly great institutions in the middle of the country that are just underrepresented. So to your point, we, we, we like to spend a lot of time, uh, in the Midwest, uh, in the South. And we've done, I would say probably a good third, at least of our portfolio, maybe a little bit more than that has come out of the Midwest and the South. Uh, mm -hmm. we're still increasing that presence, but, uh, whether it's, uh, like you said, Michigan, Ohio, Iowa, Texas, uh, great institutions, great work that's being done that just isn't getting as much attention uh, from the coastal investors. And so uh, that, that becomes a, a kind of a, a clandestine part of our thesis is to, to spend a lot of time in those uh, underrepresented uh, regions. Yeah, I hope I didn't shoot us in the foot by talking about this on a podcast because I, I think <laughs> this is like major secret that people don't really understand is, is that there's so much there an innovation standpoint that that has the potential to be commercialized if you know if you know how to do that. So I always say the, the reason you hear about so much stuff coming out of Stanford is because they have a lot of window shoppers. Right? They have right. a lot of entrepreneurs that know how to raise money that walk the halls and know the grad students and know how to pull stuff out and commercialize it. Yep. Carmichael had the VC background. You had the large large company background. Both approaching innovation in different ways. Uh, and I'm glad you brought up the network effects and nonlinear effects, uh, chaos theory, et cetera, because my observation is that I hear, I hear more VC types talking about those topics or understanding those kinds of systems than I do the corporate side, but that may not be fair. So how would you compare and contrast the different kind of worldview from a venture capitalist standpoint versus corporate innovation standpoint? You know, it, 
and I'll, and I'll maybe add a uh, second part to your question, which is, and how do we specifically look at it as a subset of the venture? You sure. know, uh, you know, I would say that in in general, uh, the you know corporate development is you know it has the following characteristics to it. You now, first characteristic is uh, it's often driven by initiatives that will, at least initially, tie back to some sort of uh, strategic imperative by that particular company, but often deviate over time. Uh, and uh, you know what? What really uh, large corporates are good at is developing a lot of IP. They have the resources, uh, you know, in every every um, large corporate development group that I've been involved with. We had, you know, several IP attorneys that were resident that would do nothing but that. And and uh, and they would work with, you know, the you know large external firms to actually prosecute patents. But all they did was, you know, they're dedicated to generating IP with the local development teams. And there were teams uh, doing that, so they're they're great at that. But you know the the following, and so and and they're great where warehousing certain technologies to a certain point. And I would say you know one last thing is they're good, they're good at taking certain technologies and taking them through a structured kind of a stage gate process uh, to define basically how they get uh, advanced through voice of customer and, and so forth. So those things are our strengths, I would say, of, of the corporate world. However, you know, the, along with that come the following challenges. Number one, and things are slow, slow moving, uh, because there's a lot of, you know, cross-functional and matrix decision-making. Um, secondly is that things are budgeted in ways that, you know, as you mentioned uh, earlier, they're not necessarily always aligned to determining what is really the most relevant and doubling down on certain things. Uh, a lot of things are kind of taken en masse together uh, and, uh, and, you know, sprinkled a little, a little, you know, a little uh, funding for this, a little resourcing for that. Thirdly is that, and this is probably the, the, the one that's the biggest challenge is that they're very, very vulnerable to leadership changes, which happen all the time. Uh, whether it's a leadership change at the very top or at the, you know, uh, chief technology officer or at the VP of R&D or the director of a certain program or the GM of a business, whatever it is, then you can get a, you know, this program stops, this program goes on, stop, you know, and things come, come back from the dead, you know, the Lazarus options, and <laughs> just, just a mishmash of things that, that constantly are undergoing changes in direction and changes in, 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 in pertinence to the imperatives. Uh, and that makes it very, very challenging. It's interesting because in the, uh, you know, in the um, startup world, you know, you have a founder who's got skin in the game, right? There's a vision and there's a persistence and there's a continuity of vision. And basically everything is at stake for that person. Everything. Exactly. Which is exactly the opposite of what I just described. Right. So c- couldn't be more different. You know, you, you have, you have dedicated people 
there's, 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 you know, we're not going through major changes in, in leadership and strategy and this and that they're focused on, you know, a, a certain objective and they have skin in the game. That's not just financial, that's personal. That's, you know, there's so many, so many different aspects to their motivation. Um, and, and so that combination is exactly the opposite of what I just described on the corporate side. So I would say, you know, th- that's a, a very clear contrast between the two approaches. Um, and there's a, there's a, there's a place for both because one of the things that, that I find that, uh, could be really interesting is, you know, the ability to also mine things coming out of large corporate, you know, R and D centers that I've been developed to a certain point and now are just sitting on the shelves. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I know you share that, uh, that, uh, that interest. And so I think that, uh, we'll be doing more and more of that, uh, developing relationships, uh, that we've, uh, we've already started with some large corporates that have, you know, banks of interesting technologies that just are sitting around in archives because they, you know, met the end of the line because there was a leadership change or a strategy change. Well, there's also been a huge increase in the amount of capital coming from corporate venture groups. So I'm definitely interested in helping corporations figure out how to play this game. I think think historically they haven't been super successful at it. Some have, you know, Intel, Google, you know, others who've put major, I think the difference is they put major long-term dollars behind it and teams behind it, right? That that gives them some of that continuity. But it's very hard to integrate with the rest of the corporation because the incentive structures are just going to be different, right? So, so, so I'm curious to get your if. So, yeah, this friend I mentioned, you know, running a venture group in a in a company, new ventures group, and he asked me this question. We'll see what you think. You know, as VCs, we apply the scale test right away as well in terms of, hey, is this a big market, right? But, but, but we know there's a lot of milestones to hit before we start worrying about massive scale production, worldwide global distribution, right? Have you seen that as well? Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and so the, so you're, you're, there's, there's two sides to that coin. So the, the first side is what you just mentioned. And, and I kind of mentioned it earlier, you know, it, it's gotta be something that moves the needle for, you know, for a large corporate to take interest in, in a program in general, outside of this new ventures type of model. I'm referring to for the, the typical corporate R and D. Right. Um, it, it, it's got to fit within one of two paradigms. Either one, it's got to be this really large market opportunity that is going to be getting, you know, it's going to move the needle for the entire organization. Or the flip side is the binary opposite of that, which also doesn't, you know, which is where most most R and D dollars are actually spent, and that is incremental you know, modifications for market share retention, right? And and to get out of the whole, you know, paint it blue and call it new kind of mentality, uh, that first one, which is something really, really disruptive, you're right. Uh, often they, they, they fail before they start because there are very few things that pass that filter. And, 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 and I think, uh, you know, creating this combination of, Hey, we need to, we need to work on some disruptive things that, and here, here's one of the keys, uh, uh, Tim, and I know this sounds somewhat obvious, but you know, you always have to be thinking about how to disrupt yourself. If you're in a market leadership position as a large corporate, your biggest concern 
better damn well be, how do you disrupt yourself? Right. So no one else does. And that's the, the market leadership that you're enjoying. You better protect that. And that's the best way to protect it. Right. And that's the great part about like Jeff Bezos and Amazon with the day one philosophy. Yep. Uh, yep. But the, you know, the scale premature scaling also turns out to be one of the biggest killers of startups. Right. Uh, right. There've been studies that have shown, you know, uh, the, the startups that fail are the ones that have too many people and raise too much money too early. Yep. Right. Versus being lean and resourceful. And uh, I often talk about, you know, your, the early phase is like test revenue versus scale revenue. You know, the test revenue phase is optimizing to learning, not optimizing for scale. That's right. And once you've learned enough to understand the unit economics and kind of confirm a lot of those things, then you can start putting jet fuel on it. But if you put poor jet fuel on and you don't know what you you have, you're just going to blow it up. Exactly right. And it's, you know, uh, said another way also, it's a lot easier to make adjustments to, and I hate to use the word pivot, but just to make slight adjustments in, in, in direction when you're small and nimble than when you've got, you know, uh, a lot of momentum, inertia, people and money behind something. Mm-hmm. So, and, and so you, you're absolutely right. That's the time to, to be able to learn and adjust and refine uh, and then you scale. So we could talk for a whole other episode just on back to, you know, chaos and complexity and nonlinear effects of systems. But, but I would like to ask you, like, what uh, in that kind of category, how does that, uh, have you seen anything new recently lately that has caught your attention that you apply to what you do? I'll take a step back and, 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 and just kind of off the cuff say that, uh, and I hate to get too, uh, hate to geek out too much on this, but, but basically nonlinearities occur at the convergence of things. When you have multiple variables at play, then you create, you know, order effects that are nonlinear. And, and so when you think about, when you, when you take that, um, thinking and you apply it towards what we do together collectively, uh, in innovation, um, you find that some of the most interesting innovations, the most powerful ones, are really those that converge a technology with a new business model or the new service model or a new sales model or a combination of the above. You know, the, the most interesting ones are actually uh, not just convergences, they're almost codependent. When a technology unlocks a new business model or a mm-hmm. new business model unlocks a new technology, that is where all the interesting stuff happens. And, and this is where deep tech is also interesting, Tim. It kind of goes back to the, the very first thing that we started talking about. The cool thing about deep tech is unlike biotech and unlike, you know, software, uh, those two latter ones, the, you know, software and biotech are pretty well-defined in terms of the algorithm of their development and how they get commercialized. Fairly well-known. Now, in the biotech world, you do a phase one study, phase two study, either either get sold then or you go to phase three. And then you, I mean, it's the same, right. crank, crank it over and over again. I've actually had brilliant entrepreneurs who are masters at the biotech world come out and tell me, I'm, I want to go into deep tech. Well, why? Because I'm tired of this algorithm. And it's okay, I've done that, you know, been there, done that. I, um, same thing with, 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 you know, software in SaaS, you know, the model is commercialization models are pretty, pretty well known in deep tech. Everyone is different. 
And a lot of them are custom tailored. Interesting. Right. I, I can tell you that, you know, in our portfolio of companies, I don't think any two companies have a similar go-to-market strategy. <laughs> you know, good, bad, or indifferent again. And so uh, that, to me, while it can be challenging to manage on one hand, as a, as a venture firm, there's a lot of cross-pollination that we learn that we can then help uh, uh, transfer to our, to our companies. But it goes back to the magic happens when you're able to marry new models, new business models, new go-to-market strategies, new service models, new sales models, along with new technology. Yeah, that's terrific. That convergence can allow you to transform an industry, not just participate in it, not just incrementally change it, but actually transform an industry because you have new business model that was enabled by some breakthrough technology, new technology. That's terrific. Adam, this was wonderful. Thank you very much for sharing your time and experience with us. Tim, it was a pleasure. Uh, it is uh, it, it is a c- continuous pleasure to work with you. And uh, and I hope that uh, outside of the, the one company you disclosed, uh, Folio Photonics, I hope there'll be many more. There'll be many more. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. You take care now. Thanks for listening to Fast Frontiers. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website, fastfrontiers.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others and give us a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform. Join us next week when we bring you my conversation with Stephanie Lapierre, founder and CEO at Tealbook in Toronto, Canada. The Fast Frontiers podcast is brought to you by Refinery Ventures. Our producer is Abby Fittis. Audio engineering by Astronomic Audio. Marketing, content, and social media support from Content Callout. And our podcast platform is casted. Casted.